This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with Nelson Sullenberger, KA2C, this morning. Good morning, Nelson. Oh, good morning, Steve. You appear on the cover of the November-December issue of the National Contest Journal, better known as NCJ, and you're smiling proudly sitting next to uh, a filter that you <laughs> that you built yourself, a very large filter. And inside, you have an excellent article. It's called Filters for Separating Same Band Signals. And I wanted to discuss how you built these filters, or built and designed them, really. Okay, yes. Um, well, they, they uh, are useful for field day. They may be useful for other contest or multi-radio station work as well. But um, I got into this because we had issues with uh, interference between mostly CW and phone radios on field day. And um, I decided to tackle this problem for the Antidium Radio Association, uh, W3CWC. And it kind of built up over a couple of years. We tried uh, and had some success with antenna configuration work, with uh, looking at our radios, bandpass filters, and so forth. Uh, but we still had issues. And um, so I started actually with some um, work that's not really in this article. I looked at uh, simpler filters uh, for receive only, thinking that that would be might be possible to do a better job of separating signals on the same band. And that went pretty well. I learned a lot of things. And because of that, I said, well, you know what? Maybe I can actually make this work uh, for uh, transmit powers of 100 watts or so, what we normally use or many clubs use. And maybe we can actually get the passband losses low enough that um, it's okay for transmit. So that was the next step, and that's what's uh, detailed in, in the paper. I noticed that the filters, and I, I may get this wrong, Nelson, uh, from 20 meters and up are a helical design. Is that correct? That is correct. And um, <clears throat> the issue there is that to build uh, coils for the resonators, that have sufficiently high Q for those bands to, uh, you know, separate signals on the same band, uh, you really get to the point where the parasitic capacitance of the coil to uh, a chamber starts to resonate the coil. And actually on 40 meters, uh, it's sort of a hybrid. There's substantial self-resonance from the parasitic capacitance of the coil. Uh, But there I do also have a discrete... um, capacitor to bring it into final resonance. For any listeners who might not be familiar, can you uh, just describe what you mean by helical design? Sure. Helical design uh, starts with um, a coil and a chamber, and the chamber electrically shields the coil, but it also forms capacitance uh, distributed over the coil to resonate the coil. So there's no need uh, or use of a discrete capacitor like you would see in a lumped um, circuit implementation, which hams are typically more familiar with. 
Uh, so it's self it's a self resonating coil, if you will. And then there's a number of interesting issues that come with it: how to couple a signal into it properly and how to configure it. But um, at some level, it's really quite simple. It's a coil inside a chamber. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's obvious in the excellent photographs that are in the article. I couldn't help but notice when you were testing, uh, you had uh, fans also operating. Those coils must apparently heat up somewhat. They do. Uh, there's only about a half a dB to one dB of loss in the pass bands for these filters, which is pretty good. Um, but uh, they, they do dissipate a little bit of heat at 1 dB, and 100 watts you're actually dumping, I think it's almost 20 watts, uh, across your filter. Uh, and with, uh, for example, uh, the two-stage two, uh, filter for 20 and 15 meters, uh, it's not equally distributed. The notch filter, which is closest to the transition band, uh, dissipates the most heat. So the issue is not so much actually dissipating the heat. The issue is that the heat will cause the resonance to move a little bit. And if it moves very much, it may actually start to um, move into the passband. And then you might actually have a more catastrophic situation where you're dumping 100 watts in, the attenuation goes up to a couple of dB. Now you start to uh, dissipate a lot of power. Uh, and that becomes a problem. So the fans are there primarily to really stabilize these filters extremely well because since the transition band is so sharp uh, and the pass band and the stop band are so close together, any movement in the resonances uh, in those filters is, is a problem. So by cooling it, you stabilize the filter extremely well. And it's also important mechanically for these filters to be uh, as absolutely as stable as possible. So I did quite a bit of work on mechanical stability as well. Now, you mentioned at the beginning, Nelson, that field day was an excellent application. Also, multi-multi uh, contestations where you have potentially two transceivers operating on the same band, one on phone and one on CW. These filters you've designed supply so much suppression that you actually make that possible, correct? Well, it certainly helps. Now, there are lots, you know, there are other techniques, which, um, of course, hams have used you know, for many years, antenna separation, using different uh, polarities on antennas, uh, of course, using radios that are very high performance, low transmit noise is very important, very quiet uh, outside of the signal, desired signal region, uh, and then having receivers that can tolerate strong signals nearby. All these things are important and are typically what is used, but Sometimes that's not enough, and um, there are other events, uh, I believe, besides field day where, where this happens. But a lot of um, your more common um, contests, though, do not have CW and phone on at the same time on the same band. So uh, this doesn't apply to, uh, to those contests, but uh, for certain ones, it may. Mm -hmm. I suppose you could operate phone and digital simultaneously. Uh, you can. There's enough separation there, typically, that you can. Uh, trying to separate digital and CW, probably not, because typically they're they're quite close. But uh, between digital and phone, uh, absolutely. I believe you said the stop band suppression that you were seeing was in a range of 20 to 40 dB. Is that correct? Yes. Um, for 80 meters and 40 meters, the stop band suppression is um, in the range of 40 dB. Uh, of course, it's not flat, uh, particularly because it's uh, a notch filter design. So you see a ripple effect across the stop band. Um, 
And then the 20 and 15 meter filters are more in the range of 20 dB stop band suppression. And partly that was a trade-off to um, achieve half a dB to a dB pass band loss. Uh, obviously, at 20 and 15 meters, you're dealing with higher frequencies, and um, 100 kilohertz uh, sorts of separation is becomes a, mu- a smaller percentage uh, of the of the frequencies. So it's it's definitely harder to achieve the um, uh, stop band losses in 20 and 15 meters. Every ARRL member has access, of course, to NCJ in digital form, and I would encourage listeners to go look at it. Uh, at this issue and your article, uh, the filters themselves, I mean, mechanically, they're works of art. How long did it take you to build those? I worked with these filters over a period of, I'd say, three to four months. It was, it did take some effort. And uh, some of the coils were hand-wound. Uh, I have three-and-a-half-inch diameter uh, coils there based on some excellent work by uh, Phil Salas, AD5X. I used his techniques to um, wind those coils using three-inch uh, PVC pipe uh, and enameled copper wire. And it took a little bit to figure out how to do that, how to do it uh, well. And then there was also issues with how to mount those coils uh, for high Q performance. It's very easy to disturb the Q of these coils. You're trying to achieve 800 to 1,000 kind of Q in some of these coils. So. Um, a lot of every factor which could degrade the coil is important. And I think you mentioned that you were using a network, uh, excuse me, a vector network analyzer to measure the response of the filter and, and to adjust it. Is that correct? Correct. It's a nano VNA, which I use, which is quite inexpensive. The last few years, uh, there's been some articles on um, the availability of these devices and how to use them. And Uh, In designing and uh, building these filters, it was absolutely essential. One of the first things I did was to simply build a single resonator, a single coil inside a chamber, uh, and then connect it uh, to a nano VNA and uh, measure um, the performance you could get out of a single notch stage and then start looking at the cue that was achievable and so forth. And that information uh, was critical to then. Uh, put into a circuit simulator. I use something called uh, uh, CUX or QUCS. So the parameters that went into the circuit simulator, I derived from the bench measurements, which I did with the nano VNA and an actual chamber. So once I had a single chamber uh, sort of understood from what it could do, uh, I was able to build up a simulator arrangement uh, with multiple stages and then actually uh, bring it into a place where I could get the performance that I was looking for. That's pretty amazing. It's uh, much more work than I would probably care to take on myself, but the results speak for themselves. And uh, your article, by the way, uh, details the design parameters. So if anybody else wants to replicate what you've done, it's all there. Yes, um, it is some work to build the filters, but Overall, they're not that complex. Or there's not that many components. And um, <clears throat> the, the work is um, largely mechanical, although having a nano VNA and some patience in tuning the filters is very important. Um, each filter required uh, at least a few hours of tuning. Um, and I do detail how to do that as well. Uh, they're not really designed to be 
tuned in the field or to be um, manipulated in the field unless there's some need to fix something. Uh, there's uh, no need to do that. Uh, they're, they're designed to, to work as fixed devices. But uh, tuning them up in the, in the first place in the bench is uh, a bit of work, but um, quite doable for, uh, I think, many hams. Certainly. Well, again, an outstanding article. Thank you for writing, Nelson, and uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you. Have a good day. Many amateurs, and I'm one of them, take pride in the fact that they assembled their own station computers rather than buying computers off the shelf. Just like when you build a radio from a kit, assembling your own computer gives you intimate knowledge that you just can't gain any other way. The downside is that you have to know more about the guts of your machine than the average amateur does. This includes the possibility of hands-on troubleshooting. The first indicator of a problem often appears the moment you press the power button. If all is well, the fan starts spinning up and the PC undergoes an immediate test known as the POST, the Power On Self Test. The POST test checks if all the components in your computer are working as they should. This includes input devices, RAM, CPU, motherboard, and your graphics card. In many PCs, but not all, the POST completes successfully, and when it does, you hear a single beep, like this. At about this same time, your motherboard BIOS will execute, and within seconds, your computer is good to go. But what happens if your monitor remains utterly blank? And instead of that reassuring single beep, you hear something like this. This is when your heart usually sinks right into your stomach, because it means the post has failed. Something has gone wrong, and the system is attempting to give you a clue as to what it might be. The clues, as it turns out, are actually in the beeps. Unfortunately, the meanings of the beep codes, as they're called, vary from one computer manufacturer to another. There are some commonalities, though. For example, two repeating beeps, like this, usually indicates a problem with your RAM memory. A long beep, followed by two short beeps, might mean a video adapter issue. A long beep, followed by one short beep, can indicate a failure on the motherboard, and a continuous tone often means a power supply problem. I've heard this one, and there's something particularly urgent about it. It makes you want to reach for the power button right away. So what's the next step? Well, if you just added a new piece of hardware to your computer, you should know that incompatible components are one of the major reasons behind post errors. Check to make sure that the parts, such as the RAM, motherboard, CPU, and graphics card are compatible with each other. One of the first things you should do to diagnose a post error is disconnect newly installed external hardware. In other words, disconnect any new peripherals and devices such as scanners or keyboards or transceivers. After disconnecting them, start your computer again and see if the error still shows up. If you have multiple USB drives or disks inserted in your computer, remove them and reboot as well. Additionally, disconnect all input and output devices, such as keyboards, mice, projectors, and printers. See if your computer boots up properly after doing this. 
If your PC boots up as usual after unplugging all these things, check each peripheral individually. Just connect your mouse and start your computer. If it starts up properly, then connect your keyboard one by one by one. This way you can figure out which device is causing the issue. Random access memory errors are one of the most common reasons for a post failure. Usually they're quite easy to fix provided you know your way around the innards of a computer. If you're using two RAM sticks, for example, try swapping the slots and see if your computer boots up. Also, try starting your computer with only one RAM module in place. Maybe the other one's defective. If your PC boots up as it usually does, it may be worth checking the BIOS to make sure that it's properly configured to use dual-channel memory. Some aren't. A post failure can also occur due to a faulty power supply unit or loose power cables. To resolve this, first disconnect all the other cables from your motherboard, including peripherals such as the mouse and keyboard. Keep the power cable connected, though. Look for the CPU and motherboard power connectors. Disconnect those and then reconnect your power connectors just to make sure they're snugly in place. If the problem turns out to be the power supply, it's best just to replace it than trying to service it down to the component level. However, make sure the replacement supply has enough wattage to power your computer. If you have a mid-range computer, it's a good idea to have a 550-watt supply at minimum. And with that, we come to the end of my final Eclectic Tech podcast for this year. By the time many of you hear this, it will be 2022, or maybe just the verge of it. Either way, have a safe and enjoyable holiday. And as the old cliche goes... See you next year. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL, and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.